Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. Today, we're talking to Dr. Michelle Nadler. Michelle is a medical oncologist here in Toronto with Princess... Margaret Cancer Care. She's also a brand new mama and happens to be a postnatal student of mine. I asked her to come onto the podcast to talk about breast cancer screening, something that I've been thinking about since I turned 40 this year. And from the truth about mammograms to prophylactic mastectomies, I feel like we have a lot to talk about. So thank you for being here, Doc. No problem. My pleasure. Welcome, welcome. And baby is napping right now, so we better get right to it in case he wakes <laughs> up. Your five-month-old is napping, so we are gonna we are gonna get right to it. And okay, like first of all, we all thought that as soon as you turn 40, it's time to get your mammogram. And you're telling us that actually we need to rethink this. Yeah, so um that's a great question. I guess we're jumping right in. But um yeah, so just to take a step back, when we think about mammogram uh, screening, we want to balance the benefits of screening with the harms of screening. And I think we hear a lot in the media about all the possible benefits, which we can talk about, but there's also some harms to screening. Um, I might even take one more step back, just so that we're all clear on screening. What screening means is that you have no symptoms, you have no concerns in your breasts, you're not worried, you feel a lump, et cetera, et cetera. And you say, well, I'm gonna go get this test, this mammogram every two to three years to screen. If you feel like there's something wrong, so if you feel a lump in your breast, in your armpit, if you're not sure, something doesn't feel right, that's not screening. That's, you need to go see your family doctor, you need to talk about what's happening, you need to get a physical exam, and you and your family doctor together decide if you need to have some tests, mammogram or ultrasound. So don't go to your doctor and say, oh, do I need a screening mammogram if you feel something? Not the same thing. That kind of makes sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So screening, the Canadian task force and most guidelines suggest that if you're from 50 to 74, in the general population, for the average woman, the benefits of screening are more than the harms. And so from 50 to 74, they recommend to screen every two to three years with mammogram. From 40 to 49, the data is a little bit less clear. The benefits are a little bit less. And if you're going to do this more often, the harms might start to be more than the benefits. So should we start with the benefits yeah. then? Well, let's, well I'm well, assuming, that, yeah, like, okay, wait, what's the problem with screening? What are the harms yeah. of screening? So some of the harms of screening, um, you know, may be a little bit obvious, things you've heard about. So it's a little bit uncomfortable. It can hurt when those things press against your breasts. Um, you might have also heard about the concern of radiation. And the risks of radiation, the harm of radiation is small, but if you start screening at 40 rather than 50, it can start to add up a little bit. This is not a big harm, but it's there. 
The two other harms that are important to talk about is one, what's called a false positive. So this you might have heard of, and false positive can either mean that you're called back for another mammogram or you need a biopsy. But in the end, you know, it's fine. There's no cancer. So that can be, you know, that can have a psychological impact on women. They can start to get more fear, more anxiety, more distress. They've looked into it and they've found, you know, even though your stress or your anxiety levels might increase if you're saying, you know, you're told, oh, there's something we're not sure, come back in six months or you need a biopsy. That doesn't tend to lead to, for example, clinical depression or clinical anxiety where you, you know, you, you need medication or, or something like that. It tends to be an acute period. And so some people might say, oh, you know what, who cares about the psychological impact? Who cares about the callback? You know, I'd rather have that and I'll deal with being anxious for a couple months so long as I know I'm good. So for some people, that's not a big deal, but for some people, that's a really big deal. And so that's one of the harms that, you know, some people, it matters. Some people are like, ah, I'm, I'm okay with that harm. The other harm that is really important to think about and is not well understood, even by physicians, family doctors, is something called overdiagnosis or overdetection. And what that means is that when we screen, we find some cancers that had you never done screening, you would never have even known you had a cancer in your lifetime. Does that sort We're of We're letting it that sink in. We're just letting that sink yeah. in. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Keep talking. Okay. <laughs> so, it's exactly. I'm just like thinking it's like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Yeah. So a lot of people think that, you know, overdiagnosis might mean extra biopsies, but it's no, it's actually, they find more cancers. And they first noticed this by actually when they did autopsies on women and they would find, you know, they would die of something else, say, I don't know, a heart attack, and they would do an autopsy and find some breast cancer. So we know that there's some breast cancers that sort of like the same thing happens with prostate cancer. You might've heard of it more in that context. It's there, it's sitting there, but it's never going to grow fast enough to cause you a problem. It's never, you had you not had that mammogram, you would never have known you had this. Uh, And so it's not ever going to like, it won't cause issue in your lifetime, but what happens when they do find that if, if they find like, because of the overscreening. Yeah. So if they, if you have a screen, a mammogram and they happen to find this abnormality and they biopsy it and the biopsy shows cancer, When we look at it on the pictures, when we look at the biopsy, we have no way of knowing if that was a cancer that was going to cause you a problem in a year or if it was never going to cause you a problem. We have zero way of knowing. They look identical on the pictures, on the biopsy. And so then we have to advise the same routine treatments we would advise for anybody, right? And so you do end up with some women who will have surgery, radiation, possibly chemotherapy, possibly, you know, hormone blocking tablets that would never have needed them. Oh my God. Yeah. Like percentage wise. Yeah. Like, so you, they didn't need it. They go through this life changing traumatic event and they may not have ever needed it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Or they may have, that's what I'm trying to like wrap my head around. I'm like, so so you just simply, w- you won't know. So, but is it, but I guess the question is, 
if you weren't over screening and you're the 40 to 49 age group um, and you're doing which will understand what you recommend um, next uh, for that age group specifically. But if you're not doing um, the over screening, then I guess it would just come, it would probably grow. Is that what would happen? And then it would become a lump and then it would become an issue if it was actually something that needed to be dealt with? Yeah. So um, basically this overdiagnosis harm or this potential problem, it's, it's a little bit hard to quantify how, what the percentage likelihood, you know, some studies say as low as 5% up to 50%. The best studies say, wait, yeah. Uh, wait, time out, pause. <laughs> well, uh, the best- I'm making best a T sign here on Zoom. I'm like <laughs> using my hands, waving frantically. Time out, repeat that stat. So- if you take like all the studies and some are probably overblown, you know, anywhere from five to 55 50. to zero, the 50. best estimates are probably between 10 to 20%. That's high. It's high. high. Yeah. High. So if we backtrack, if we consider that the average risk of breast cancer for a woman is about, you know, one in nine or say 10 to 12% chance of getting breast cancer over your lifetime. That's the average. That's assuming your average risk, you know, and we can talk about how to assess your actual risk of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you compare that, let's just call the chance of overdiagnosis 10%, which is a pretty low ball number. If your average risk of getting breast cancer at 40 is 10%, but your chance of overdiagnosis is 10%, like that maybe for you, the harms of screening are probably going to be higher than the benefits. Okay. How we try to decide, you know, should I go for screening or not is to try to see, well, is your risk of breast cancer higher than the average? This is for 40 to 49. So if your risk of getting breast cancer in your life is, um, you know, we calculate it and it's 20%, well, then the benefits for you of screening are going to be higher than the harms. And so for you, screening might be the right decision. And from 50 to 74, because age is in and of itself a risk factor for, for breast cancer, from 50 to 74, on average, the benefits of screening are more than the harms. And so they say for everybody, screen every two to three years. From 40 to 49, the guidelines are actually not that clear, which is why you do see a lot of variation in practice amongst family physicians. So they say uh, from 40 to 49, sometimes I want to read them because they're a little bit unclear, but they say basically we don't recommend routine screening, but a decision to screen should be made between a woman and her healthcare provider based on the relative benefits and harms, as well as the woman's values when it comes to screening. So that's what the guidelines say, and they're a little bit vague. To most people that think about it, they think about it this way. They think, first, I need to do a risk assessment. I need to find out what's my personal risk of breast cancer. Then from there, I need to talk about the benefits and the harms. So how do you determine your risk? We have major risk factors and minor risk factors. The major risk factors are, unfortunately, things that you can't really control. So the first and most major risk factor is, do I have a gene like the BRCA gene that you may have heard of, but there's other ones called PALB2, CHECK2. But do I have a gene that predisposes me to breast cancer? 
If that's the case, then your lifetime risk of breast cancer is going to be a lot higher than the average woman. So screening might be, you know, more highly recommended for you. And if you have a really high risk of breast cancer, there's actually something in Ontario called the high risk screening program, where you'll actually get yearly MRIs. And that's one of the links I sent you. So if you have a strong family history, you're going to want to talk to your family doctor about genetic testing and about whether you actually qualify for high risk screening. Now, this doesn't mean oh, I have one family member that had breast cancer when they were 70. This is, you know, multiple family members and at young ages. I won't go through all the details here, but it, one of the links that I sent has sort of the list of criteria. So if you're curious, you can sort of look and see, oh, would I fall into this? But definitely major risk factors. So do I have a gene? Do I have a first degree relative with breast cancer younger than 60? That would be a high risk family member. i sorry, make you higher risk if the family member was younger than 60. Um, age greater than 60 is a major risk factor just because we see an increased incidence of cancer with age. And then, you know, have I had a precancerous lesion in my breast before? So you might have heard of precancer or something called DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, which means they see the starting of little cancer cells inside the ducts of the breast, but they haven't yet crossed the border of the duct lining. And you would, you would know if you had this. So those are some of the major risk factors that would really increase your risk. And unfortunately, as you can see, that you can't change those, right? We can't undo our family history or undo our genetics. No. Then there's minor risk factors. And these are also some of the things that you may have heard of. So these would be second or third degree relatives with breast cancer, or maybe a first degree relative, but they were older. This also has to do with your exposure to estrogen and estrogen cycling. So more exposure to estrogen can slightly increase your risk of breast cancer. So getting your period earlier in life or having menopause later in life, right? That would increase your exposure time to estrogen. So this slightly increases your risk. What would be, sorry to cut in there because I'm thinking about menopause. <laughs> so what would be, <laughs> Not yet, Nikki. <laughs> It's coming. It's like winter it's is here. coming. Menopause <laughs> is coming. Episode. Jen Pike said it's already here. So sorry. This is the next frontier for me. So what is considered having menopause late? Like give me a little ballpark mm. figure here. So early, I guess early periods, I believe is considered uh, uh, earlier than 12 for early, early menarche or early starting periods. And late menopause is considered over age 55. Okay. Over 50. Cause of course I've asked my mom, I'm like, when did it happen for you? Like all these questions. Cause it's hereditary to some extent, right? Yeah, exactly. But okay. to put this in perspective, um, with every year that you're earlier for your period, the relative risk increases by 1.05. So that's tiny. Okay. And okay. for every year, year later, 1.03. So if you had your period before 12, or if you get menopause after 55, that's the risk. Yeah. But again, these, so just, if you want to do a little math, um, right. If it's one, your risk is 1.03 relatively higher, take 10%, take 3% of 10%. So 0.03. So instead of your lifetime risk being 10, it's now 10.03. 
That's helpful right. for contests. Thank you. I'm <laughs> right. not a math person, but but this is helpful. Thank you. <laughs> right. So these are very tiny. So if you otherwise have, you know, none of the other major risk factors and none of the other minor risk factors, getting menopause a year later is like, you know, what's the expression? A needle in the haystack or like bucket. a drop right. in the bucket. Yeah. Um, the other minor risk factors, just so we kind of check them off is, you know, later first pregnancy and lack of breastfeeding. This has to do with when you have your first pregnancy, your breasts undergo sort of their final differentiation. So their final um, development into the ability to lactate. Um, And they're less exposed to carcinogenic um, insults. So they're less, slightly less likely to sort of be affected in a way that could lead to cancer. But again, the risk is very small. So it, good, good to know. Cause, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did I say? X first kid that's considered old. I know. So at how old? 36. Yeah. I was 34. So, I mean, same, I mean, but yeah, so basically, uh, the relative risk for a full term pregnancy over 30 is Less than, 30. So Lexi, that's you too. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's one to 2%. So again, if you did the math, you'd end up with a 10.1% risk rather than a 10%. Risk. Got it. All right. we'll but it's like, it. Yes. In theory, you could control that risk, but I don't think personally, I would choose to have a pregnancy at 29 rather than 34. If I wasn't, you know, ready for that in my ready. life. Right. Just to reduce my risk of breast cancer. (laughs) Yes. Yes, for sure. But I mean, technically it is a controllable. (laughs) Yeah. Not, I mean, not for for everyone. That's a whole other bucket of bumps, but it's really, these, these are really minor. Right. Um, The other ones to think about are uh, in terms of minor risk factors is, um, you know, part of what we can control, which is healthy lifestyle uh, and diet. So increase in mostly postmenopausal obesity can, because if you're obese, you have more circulating estrogen. So that can predispose to breast cancer, higher BMI, um, and alcohol intake. Smoking actually doesn't influence breast cancer that much. And there's a whole host of other reasons not to smoke, but alcohol tends to impact, um, more than smoking. And again, this isn't, I'm having the odd glass of wine. This is, you know, over the recommended drinking um, recommendations of 10 glasses a week. Um, and again, these are minor. So, you know, physical activity compared to someone who's completely physically inactive would be important limiting alcohol intake, but this isn't the type of thing that, Oh, I have, you know, one bad day or one bad week that is really going to impact your breast cancer risk. Yeah. So it's, so when you're, Okay. So let's say you're someone who is in that like first degree of, you know, the hereditary breast cancer. So that would then go into, um, what type of screening and then what's the process? Because it sounds like for anyone who has more of the, you know, lower risks, but still risks, um, like what's then the guideline for them that's recommended. And is that consistent throughout like it or is it still up to I guess the I guess it would be but up to the patient on how often that they would like to get screened 
Those are all good questions. Um, the so the guidelines say from 40 to 49, it's you know an informed discussion between her woman and the healthcare provider. So let's say you go to your family doctor and you calculate your breast cancer risk. And um, let's say you're slightly higher than average. And there's one of the tools I included is a way you can is an online tool to calculate your own risk. So you can sort of guesstimate it, but I think always worth it to check in with your family doctor. Um, Let's say you're slightly higher than average, then you might choose, yes, I do want to have screening. And, you know, you should have a conversations about the benefits of screening, about the harms. And if you choose to go ahead with screening, then it is with a mammogram. Screening is done with a mammogram. Ultrasound is used to sit to, you know, if they are like, oh, I think I see something on the mammogram, I need to look closer. That's when they would use ultrasound. But mammogram is the main screening tool. The guidelines for 40 to 49 don't actually say how frequently. Most people believe that, you know, following the every two to three year guide that is for 50 to 74 would be legit. But this is, again, why you see differences in practice. So there are some family doctors who say screen every year. Some who say don't screen at all is because the guidelines aren't super clear for 40 to 49 what the frequency should be. But given that 50 to 74 is every two to three years, that's probably a good standard for 40 to 49, in, in my opinion. That's good. Uh, this, this is good information. <laughs> We're all, good. So we look a little like shell-shocked here getting all like, Yeah, sorry. I feel like I'm just I like, really like information dumping. No, it's <laughs> all good. I think it's just so surprising because there's so much um, information out there. And I haven't, because I'm not 40 yet, but I haven't gone to, you know, my doctor and had this discussion, but from what you see on like, a you know, social media and things like that, I would have understood it that you turn 40 and like mammograms are something that is a regular occurrence in your life. So, and Nikki, I don't know you, you're more educated in this like area of like the female body than I am, but I don't know what you're, your what you were thinking when you did go in and meet with your you know, position yeah, for, it was yeah. more that we had a conversation, I think a couple years ago, like maybe even I was probably late thirties and she just mentioned in passing, Oh, you're going to be 40 soon. You've got to start booking those mammograms. It's really important. And that was it. And I, and it just like planted a seed in my brain, but you know, I, I actually thankfully don't have any family history of breast cancer. Um, I mean, I have the other risk factors of having my first breastfeeding experience at 36 with my first kid. Um, but I think based on, and I'm going to do this, this assessment, we're going to put this link in the show notes so that everybody can do that assessment. But yeah, I think, I think what blows my mind the most is this, this likelihood that there are people out there who are diagnosed with, I'm going to call it a non-aggressive form of breast cancer. And they go through the whole process, the the chemo, the radiation, the mastectomy or the lumpectomy, and they didn't need it. And I, I think that that's a really hard thing for anybody to wrap their head around. And obviously there's going to be people who do really do need it and it's life-saving for them. But the fact that we still are at a place in medicine where we can't differentiate if the cancer is really harmful and aggressive, or if it's kind of like, yeah, it's cancer, but it's never going to kill you. It's never going to really impact your life. Do you know what I mean, doc? Absolutely. So it's, let me just clarify, like when we see the features of a breast cancer, right? When we, we as oncologists will know 
if it's aggressive or not based on a whole bunch of different features can have a whole other podcast on that. (laughs) Um, It's like when they do the mammogram and they see it on the screen, that's, you know, we don't know. We, we know it looks like a cancer, but I can't tell if it's one that would have caused you a problem in your lifetime or it's one of these overdiagnosed cancers. You're right that the overdiagnosed ones will tend to be on the less aggressive side. Absolutely. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think yeah. really like guidelines here that I'm getting, cause I always want to, my, I feel like sometimes my role is to take this information and try to like synthesize it and communicate it in as layman's terms as possible. It's what I do in like the pelvic health world. So if yeah. I were to try to apply that to this, it would be if you have no sort of really critical concerns, the first line, the first sort of relative, I forget the term you use, but like a mom, a grandparent, like I'm assuming that's like, someone that if they have breast cancer under the age of 60, then you're, or if you have the BRCA gene or any of these genes, then yes, you do need to go and get screened for sure between 40 and 49. But if you have smaller risk factors, then you may want to consider not going. Exactly. Yeah. So I would even break it down into like three categories. So really high risk, you know, genetic mutation, strong family history, see if you, you need genetic testing and see if you qualify for even the high risk screening program. Intermediate risk, you know, maybe one first degree relative from 40 to 49, your personal benefits are likely to be higher than your personal harms. And so you may decide to go for screening and then lowest level of risk. I don't, maybe the only risk factor you have is your 34 and your first pregnancy (laughs) that the harms might outweigh the benefits for you. That being said, so on average, if I was your family doctor, I would tell you, you know, your harms probably outweigh your benefits. So on balance, I don't recommend it. But what the guidelines say is that your values as a woman also matter. So if you understand the harms and if you understand what overdiagnosis is and understand that there might be false positives, but you say, you know what, I still want to engage in screening, then technically you have that mm-hmm. right. Um, you know, as if I, as a physician, I wouldn't recommend that on average, but there are certain women for whom they say, you know what, like I understand maybe the chance of harm is more, but I had this experience and, you know, I just can't stop thinking about it. And so for me, I think I'd feel better having the mammogram than by all means, go for it. But I think the wrong thing is to say, oh, you're 40, go get a mammogram. Right. Without that discussion, without that understanding of what the potential harms are. So I guess what I'm saying for 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 that low risk woman, 40 to 49, you really need to have a discussion and a conversation and think about it. Good advice. Thank you. And, and not so the advice Nikki, that I got. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. So for Nikki specifically, so she's exactly that low, lowest risk, um, only risk being that like point ten. I was old when I had my baby. <laughs> I misunderstood Yeah, me that too. And I, I got knowing what I know, I wouldn't want to get a mammogram until I was 50, personally. Yeah. So which, yeah. Would, would your recommendation for Nikki be, as long as that continues and these risk factors stay this low, that she wouldn't need to get a mammogram until she's 50? Yeah, I mean, I'm not your family doctor, so I don't know your whole history. Yeah, 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 I'm putting you on the spot here. But yeah, again, if you're low risk 
no additional risk factors, then from 40 to 49, for the average low-risk woman, the harms are more than the benefits. That doesn't mean that there's no benefits. It just means yeah. the potential for harm is higher than the potential for benefit on average. Okay. We right? need to talk. I never know what that is. I never know as a physician where you're going to fall in that. Yeah. Right. That, and but I, that handy but for test. Someone, do the test. Yeah. Basically. Do the test. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but for, if you're low risk from 40 to 49, the, on average, the harms are, are more than the benefits. Right. That is a huge knowledge drop right there. So yeah, I'm so yeah. excited we're talking about this because it sounds like a lot of people are not getting that information, even my family doctor. So, um, okay, can we talk about the the Angelina Jolie effect of prophylactic <laughs> mastectomy? And you're you're like, this is a thing. It's actually called that. I did not make up this term. And Wikipedia, <laughs> it's on Wikipedia. So if you, she had, I was reading about it. She had something like an 80 something percent chance of getting breast cancer due to her family history. She had the BRCA gene. She opted to have a prophylactic bilateral. I think it's a yeah bilateral mastectomy. Yeah, mastectomy. Both sides. yeah, got it. Thank you. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you noticed that there was, I think, after you know a big celebrity like that does this. You know, you're saying you were saying before we started recording, you noticed an uptick of women doing the same thing. Um, can you speak a little bit more about you know what that's about, and if you and and who would you even potentially recommend it to, if at all? Yeah. So not just I noticed a big up, basically there was a big uptick in people going for genetic testing to test if they had the BRCA gene or to test if they had any other genes. Um, and, you know, something like that can be good because it raises awareness. And there might have been people with really strong family histories who never went to get genetic testing and they took this as the opportunity. But again, and it's in those links, there's sort of criteria for if you qualify in Ontario if you qualify for genetic testing and it's based on your family history. So BRCA or BRCA is one of the most common genes that predisposes to breast cancer. The BRCA1 gene predisposes to both breast and ovarian cancer. So if you have a family history of breast and ovarian cancer, all the more reason to get screened. So those in BRCA2 um, breast and some other cancers. Um, and then there are certain backgrounds that can increase your chance of having the BRCA gene. So on average, actually, only 0.25% of women carry a BRCA gene. So it's really small. Um, Ashkenazi Jews or Ashkenazi Jewish women, the prevalence is about 2.5%. So it's higher. So for example, if you're of that descent and you even have, you know, one family member who's had breast cancer, you would qualify for genetic testing. The other populations that um, are more known to have the BRCA gene are um, actually in the Icelandic population, Finnish, um, and some Norwegians and French Canadians. There's a few others, but those are the most common. So a, there's a lot of talk about this, but there's, you know, we still see a lot of women with strong family histories that don't carry the BRCA gene. Um, the other people who might get tested if they had a really young, if you're really young when you're diagnosed with breast cancer, like if you're less than 35, for example, they'll always test you for the BRCA gene because it's very young to get breast cancer. So once you have this gene, there's two options. 
if you carry the BRCA1 gene, the chances of getting breast cancer in your lifetime are between 50 to 80%. So that's quite high, right? That's very different than the average risk of 10%. If you're in this category, then in Ontario, you have two options. The first option is to get enrolled in the high risk screening program. And you can always get a referral from your family doctor. You have to see a genetic counselor and then you get enrolled. And starting at age 30, you receive yearly MRIs, breast MRIs and yearly mammograms as part of your screening. You also need physical exams. If you get enrolled, they'll sort of give you the explanation. They may be moving toward just MRIs in the future because MRIs are very, very sensitive. Um, the other option you have is to have, you know, basically screening doesn't get rid of your risk of breast cancer, right? It doesn't do anything to prevent the breast cancer. It just tries to catch it early when it's very treatable. Your other option is to have what Angela, Angelina Jolie had, which is prophylactic mastectomy. So if you get rid of all of the breast tissue, then your chance of cancer dramatically decreases and it gets almost you know, down to zero if you have both breasts removed. That's a big surgery, especially if you do reconstruction at the same time. So any woman that, that's considering this will meet with a surgeon to understand, well, what are, you know, what's the surgery like and what are all the potential issues and complications that can arise from the surgery? I'm not a surgeon, so I can't give you the nitty gritty, um, but certainly, you know, there's pain, there's chance of infection, depending on what kind of reconstruction you have. There's a lot of women that have pain or discomfort from implants, and sometimes that pain can be lifelong. Um, so, you know, it's definitely a decision to think, of, again, to think about, to understand specifically what's going to, what is important to you. Um, and, and that's why generally we don't recommend prophylactic mastectomies for, again, the average risk women, right? Having the BRCA gene with a 50 to 80% chance of developing breast cancer in your lifetime, it's going to make sense to do something to get that risk, you know, very close to zero. Whereas again, if your risk is 10%, balancing that with all the potential harms of surgery it's again a place where harms are potentially more likely than benefit. Yeah. So with the double um, bilateral prophylactic mastectomy, like, do you have any numbers on that? I'm just curious. Like, how? I wonder, like, how common it is. And it's great that I hear it's covered. I don't know. We have a lot of American listeners too around the world, so I don't know what the state the status is there. But it's it's encouraging to see that. It's something that the government here, at least in Ontario, would pay for. But I wonder, like, and you may not have the answer, but how many people, when they find out they have the BRCA gene, I guess, it, you know, do you have a sense of how many people opt for this, this prophylactic mastectomy versus just a, a yearly screening program? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have numbers. What I can tell you is it sometimes depends on how old they are when they find out. So some people, for example, they only, they find out at, 50, 55, 60 that they have it. And actually, if you've made it, if you have the BRCA gene and you've made it all the way to 60 without breast cancer, your risk is actually, you know, you've, you've lived out, I guess, the major period of risk. So sometimes those will be the people who tend to not opt for the surgeries. 
Um, often young women do, but many choose to, you know, have a family and they want to breastfeed. And so they want to do those things first. Um, and so they can go to their, you know, they may be seeing a, a more specialist in this area, like a GP oncologist who can advise them who, you know, they'll do some screening maybe right before they conceive. And it also depends on your specific family. So let's say you have the BRCA gene, but the youngest member of your family to have breast cancer was 45. You may be able to wait a bit longer than if you have the BRCA gene, but the youngest member of your family to have breast cancer was 35. We assume or we think that the younger it's happening in your family, then you're also at risk for it to happen younger. Okay. Yeah, this is this is really, I mean, obviously there's no hard and fast answer. So what I'm hearing from you is that we really need to weigh the pros and the cons and every situation is super unique. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the take home message with screening and with cancer is that every situation is unique and an informed discussion about potential benefits and potential harms for your situation is really, really important. Can I ask a question about breastfeeding and breast cancer? I... I'm curious to know if you notice an uptick of women, like, you know, if you're nursing, things can be lumpy, especially when the milk comes in and you can be engorged and you can be like, maybe like, do people miss lumps because of breastfeeding? Like what, is there any type of conversation? Cause so many women listening to this are probably going to be breastfeeding. So what did the, what yeah. is it that they need to know? I think that So I certainly, I mean, I'm an oncologist, so I'm, even if something happens really rarely, I'm going to see it. So I certainly do see some women that, um, you know, they were initially thought maybe it was mastitis, right? An infection of the breast. They try some antibiotics, it doesn't go away. And then they realize it's breast cancer. So that certainly happens. I don't think it happens as frequently as maybe the media thinks it does. I think the take home point, and I said this at the beginning, is that if you have a concern, right, you need to go see your doctor. It's not screening in that case. If you feel a lump, if something feels off, um, breast or armpit, you need to see your family physician. And it may be, for example, that the family physician has said, listen, let's try some antibiotics. If it doesn't go away, then come back and then we need to, you know, do a mammogram or ultrasound. I would say, that in your thirties, still the most likely thing to happen is, you know, a a blocked milk duct or an infection. That's way more likely. So of course you're going to try to see if you can sort of solve it with those methods before going for a mammogram. But if you try something and it's not getting better, you know, go back, we see what, what you need to do. Have I sort of answered your question? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, still most commonly in the 30s, it's going to be a whole host of other things before it's going to be breast cancer. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Okay. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, like- I have a waking up baby. Uh Oh, (laughs) well, good thing we've gotten like all your knowledge, all the breast cancer knowledge out of you so far. So, oh, I'm not all of it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I probably, I probably have time for one more question if that, if, uh, well, if you have anything else to leave, uh, you know, our listeners with maybe even around how, how we can, uh, reduce our risk of breast cancer, if there's any tips around that, that would be probably a great, great place to end. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like we talked about, 
uh, unfortunately, a lot of the risk factors are not changeable. I think the main things are think about your risk. And if you have very high risk, make sure you see if you qualify for genetic testing or the high risk screening program. If you're very low risk, the main things we can do are try to keep ourselves healthy. So a healthy BMI, physical activity is definitely helpful in decreasing alcohol intake, extremely helpful. The one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about, unfortunately, and I wish we had more time, is you probably heard a lot about breast density. So how dense are your breasts? How, um, honestly, white and snowstormy do they look on the mammogram? And the tricky thing with breast density is that you don't know if you have dense breasts until you do that first mammogram. And we know that breast density does actually slightly increase the risk of breast cancer and also makes it trickier to see. Um, so, but unfortunately it's something that you can't change either in the States. They've now mandated that you need to be told if you have dense breasts, um, in Canada, I don't think there's a mandate to say, but a lot of radiologists will comment if you do have a mammogram, um, that there is dense breasts. So I know that there are some people or some physician, family physicians that when they're talking with women will say at 40, maybe your average risk, but is it worth it to do one mammogram to see if you have dense breasts? And if you do, then we'll engage in screening. But if you don't, then we won't. That's, you know, potentially reasonable. That's not a guideline, but we are in this sort of sticky place where it's really hard to know what to do with breast density. And I think the research will evolve and hopefully tell us more. Um, Radiologists will certainly advocate for increasing screening with dense breasts as well. I've sort of gone off on a tangent, but really, you know, being aware of all these issues, being aware of your own personal risk and healthy lifestyle, I think are the main things that I would, you know, soy advocate products. for. I have to sneak one more in there. Soy products. Okay. What's the deal? Soy milk. I stopped drinking oh. soy milk because I feel like it's bad for breast cancer. Is that false or not? You a little bit is fine. I think if you had like all your meals from soy, not good. But you wouldn't want. I all used your meals. to. I did. I used to. Really? It was like tofu, oh, soy stir fry. I was soy protein powder. Like in my twenties, I was like all about the whole like I'm going to be vegan, and I didn't really know how to do that healthily. So I have <laughs> stopped. But so you're saying that there is, you know, because we've heard that, and I don't know how mm-hmm. much truth there is to that. It's totally fine. Everything in moderation is good. <laughs> I guess is my, right. yeah. You're not okay. going to get breast cancer from having soy, you know, healthily throughout your range of dietary meals, if that makes sense. Okay. But if I had kept yeah. up my soy protein and my tofu and my soy sauce every day, then maybe. To be honest, I don't a hundred percent know the data. I've not seen, you know, major, you know, in, in going through the literature, I've not seen major studies to confirm this, but I think often there's a lack of studies in general on, um, all, I don't, not that soy is alternative, but on alternative or complementary medicines. The problem is just that there's not a lot of data. So no one's done, you know, a big study specifically looking at soy, um, that I'm aware of, it might be out there. On the other hand, we haven't seen it obviously come through when we look at, for example, retrospective studies as being like a huge issue. So I think that's where the recommendation comes to say everything in moderation. 
Yeah, too but much certainly of in years and right? exactly in years and years and years of studying breast cancer, this hasn't come out as a big problem, which okay. tells you, you know, if it was a big problem, we would see a signal about it. Yeah. And even yeah. some cultures eat so much soy, right? And they, you know, like I think yeah. in Japanese culture, they have a ton of it. And do they have a higher or lower? I mean, I think be curious to to look at that. Anyways, that's a whole tangent. You got to go get a baby. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming welcome. on and sharing this knowledge. Uh, I know all of our listeners are probably the same as I feel right now, which is just like, wow, I, I am so happy that we have this information and really nice of you to break it down the way you did and the stats and everything around it. So thanks for coming on. Um, and, uh, really appreciate it. No problem. My pleasure. Nice chatting with you guys today. You're amazing. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.